Aloha, we're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. So tonight we're going to continue on with the topic of tithing. And we talked a little bit in weeks past that it's not the truth that sets you free. It's the truth that you know that sets you free, right? You have to know the truth in order for it to set you free. And we looked at this passage out of John chapter 8. We, we've looked at this several times, John 8, 31 through 32. And it says, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. We've hit some of these highlights. I want to hit them again because we're going to go in a different direction tonight. But the truth won't make us free on its own. The truth won't do that. Knowing about truth doesn't set us free. Knowing truth sets us free. We have to know it. And the word know in this verse, uh, you will know the truth. It's this Greek word. I'm not going to pretend to say it. But it means experiential firsthand knowledge. It means to have an experience with something. That's when you actually know something. So to know the truth so that it'll make us free, we have to walk in that truth. We actually have to experience it. And then that truth sets us free. I think that finances are one of the the main topics that believers struggle to know truth about. And therefore, it's one of the main things that believers aren't set free in. The truth about tithing exists, it's out there, but a lot of Christians don't experientially know the truth about tithing, and it's never actually set them free. And when we we choose not to walk in the truth when it comes to these things, we're actually choosing to stay under the curse. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When God said that he wants us to tithe, can somebody move this fan a little bit? I feel like it's... You're hearing a rumbling from the fan. Thank you. When God set up the tithe, it wasn't for his sake, right? It's for our sake. He set up the tithe for us, and yet so many people still rest in the, uh, wrestle in this bondage to finance when God actually intended the tithe and finances to be one of the greatest blessings given to us. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You have to know the truth before he'll make you free. And in fact, there's other scriptures like when Jesus sees these people coming to him who are moving in the prophetic and moving in the signs and wonders and healings, and we love those things. Those things are part of the kingdom. But he looks at them and he says, get away from me, I never knew you. It's the same word here. It's, I never had a firsthand experience with you. I never actually had any contact. You may have known about me, but you didn't know me. And so when it comes to tithing, it's not that there's truth out there. God is actually asking us to test him in this area of finances because that's knowing the truth. It's a firsthand experiential knowledge. It's this idea of taking him up on that, that promise. There's a test involved. And it involves taking a step of faith into that promise. Why is it 
that we have to know the truth instead of just, you know, the truth exists and it should just set us all free. Why do we have to have this firsthand experiential knowledge with it? I think because God loves risk. Risk is an invitation to step into faith. And when, when we take that risk, when we take that leap of faith, that's when we get to know if he's telling us the truth or not. And that's when the truth sets us free. He gives these invitations to step into promises because there's freedom attached to the promise. You can't have the freedom without stepping into it, but he, and he won't do it for you. How many of you have ever had any promises over your life where you're just like, God, can you just make this one happen without me? Can I just sit back and watch this one unfold? We need to understand that we will walk in freedom associated with promises only when we do that thing, only when we obey, not when we hear about it, not when we believe in it, but when we take him up on the promise, then the freedom comes that sets us free. Then the truth unlocks the door. In other words, we have to operate in faith toward any promise that God gives us before the truth sets us free in those things. Faith, again, we talked about, you remember the wheelbarrow, the guy over Niagara Falls, that story? Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it was a good story, I promise. Faith is belief that has action attached to it. Just like that wheelbarrow. When that guy walked over Niagara Falls dozens of times on a tightrope with a wheelbarrow or cooking eggs or whatever he was doing, everyone said, I believe you can do it again, but no one volunteered to get in the wheelbarrow and do it with him. That's the difference between faith and belief. It's this firsthand experience that gives us knowledge of a thing and that gained experiential knowledge then sets us free. We've talked a little bit over the past couple of weeks about the heart behind tithing. We've, we've looked at the promises that God associates with tithing. We looked at uh, Malachi chapter 3 where God says, if you tithe, I will do all these things for you. And again, I know that sometimes believers don't love the idea of another sermon on tithing. And again, the first reason is because they don't understand the spiritual implications that tithing actually has. Tithing is a spiritual act. It's not a physical act. It's a spiritual act that has physical actions attached to it. The second reason why I think a lot of believers aren't super stoked on tithing is because they've seen it abused. Anything in the kingdom can be abused, but it doesn't make it not a kingdom principle anymore. It just means someone has abused it. We've all seen and we've all heard horror stories about pastors, ministries, whoever, who have uh, just burned people, stolen money, done all that stuff. And it, it does perpetuate this mindset with people who have been burned that, oh, the church just wants my money. That's all they care about. And it does happen. There's, there's all kinds of dysfunctional things. But listen, sin, abuse, and dysfunction of anybody is not allowed to supersede biblical commands. It's not allowed to supersede biblical truths. It's terrible that people abuse those things, and yet God still says, well, this is the truth. Let it set you free. Tithing isn't dysfunctional. People's hearts are dysfunctional. And we've talked about this, that tithing actually reveals the heart because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The kingdom of God is upside down. You would think that where our heart is, that's where our money goes. But Jesus says, hey, wherever you put your money, your heart's actually going to follow it there. I can't stress this enough that God doesn't need your money. He needs your heart. 
And in the kingdom, your heart follows your treasure, according to Jesus. And it's interesting that he puts a test on that side of the relationship with him when it comes to finances. And the reason is because he knows if he can have your finances, he'll have your whole heart. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So let me give you guys a couple of basics, um, stuff many of you have probably heard over the years. I want to give you some basics, and then we'll move into some meat. God didn't invent tithing for his sake. He invented it for our sake, right? He doesn't have any needs. He's not needing you to make sure that he pays his air conditioning bill. But apparently, apparently there, are only, there are certain things that we can only learn through giving, there's, only certain, there's some certain tests that we can only pass through the act of giving. And we never give to get. That's not biblical. We don't give tithes so we can get a bigger reward because we know that he is the greater reward. He is who we're pursuing. He is who we're after. And, you know, if God made it just this um, mindless activity where if we put $10 in a tithing envelope that the next day in our mailbox would be $100, if he just made it this mindless thing, everyone would pass that. Everyone would do that. There, there's no faith involved with that. God only operates through faith. He says that it's impossible to please him without faith. And as we'll talk about tonight, faith is actually an essential part of tithing. And I feel like God says, I want you to give financially because I gave. It's like God is saying, Guys, giving is my nature. It's who I am. And if you behold me, you will become like me. And guess what? Giving is part of who I am. You should look like me, and giving is part of that. I think that tithing is God's biggest trust me situation, you know? And again, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but that's why he says, give me the first 10%. It takes faith to give the first 10% more than it takes to give the last 10%. We'll, we'll hit that in a minute. The definition of tithing, the word tithe actually means one-tenth. So by definition, tithing is 10%. So you cannot tithe 20%. You can give 20%, but tithing is 10%. Um, you also can't tithe 5% because tithe equals 10%. So when people say, I tithe 10%, uh, I would never say this. And like reading, we would never do this. It's the other churches, right? But when someone says, oh yeah, I tithe 5%, 10% is too much for me. In Malachi 3, which we spent some time in, God actually says, that's robbing me. He says, bring me the whole tithe. And then I will do all those things that he promises us. Tithing is 10%. It goes to the local church. And yes, you can definitely give elsewhere, but God designated that first 10% to come into his local household. So again, I want to read Malachi chapter 3, just those four main tithing verses. Um, and I want, to, I want to look at something new tonight in those four verses. So let's go to Malachi chapter 3. God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring me the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. 
Then I will rebuke, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen, even when people argue, rightfully argue, they say, yeah, but Sam, this is under the law. Malachi was, that time period was under the law, and we're not under the law. This is a principle of the law. Well, okay, but again, the idea of tithing existed before the law. It existed long before God gave Moses the law, and yes, it did happen during the law, but guess what? It also happened after the law was fulfilled in Jesus. Both Jesus and Paul talk about the tithe. And so here's my question. Leave that up there just for a minute. Do you think God reverses this promise over the tithe? Do you think that God doesn't mean this promise over the tithe anymore? The crazy part about these verses is three verses before this, God literally says, I don't change. And then he gives all these promises associated with tithing. My hunch is even if you were to say, well, that's under the law, the promise don't change. The promise doesn't change. Sorry, we don't have great grammar here at Reunion. Welcome to Hawaii. We're going we're gonna to look at a story out of the book of Exodus tonight. And there, this was during a time when God told Moses to consecrate or set aside or make holy these different animals and commit them to him. So let's go to Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So leave that up there for a minute. God says, Consecrate or make holy every firstborn child and every firstborn animal. Set them aside, make them holy for me. And in, in those days, God had two uh, categories of animals. There were clean animals and there were unclean animals. Some animals, just based on God's choice, were clean. Some animals, like centipedes, are just unclean. I don't know why God made them. He just, I think that was part of the curse. But we see this idea all throughout the Old Testament, how there were clean animals, there were unclean animals. We even see this in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where Peter is up on the roof. He has this trance, this huge sheet or blanket comes down and it's filled with all these creeping animals. And the Lord says, uh, get up, Peter, kill and eat these things. And Peter's like, I can't because some of them are unclean. And the Lord's basically like, no, nothing's unclean anymore. But it's even, we just see this principle throughout the Bible. You guys have heard about clean and unclean animals. Exodus 13, God's talking about the firstborn animal and firstborn child. And then a few verses later, starting in verse uh, 12, he says this, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord, but every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You'll, you'll kill it. And every firstborn man among you, your sons, you shall redeem. So God here gives two options for every firstborn to redeem it to the Lord or to sacrifice it to the Lord. Those are the only two options for firstborns. And God also names the types of animals. He, he names the lamb, which is the clean animal, and he names the donkey, which is the unclean animal. So here in, in verses 11, or 12 through 13, if you have 
a firstborn of a clean animal, the lamb, you have to sacrifice it. But if you have the firstborn of an unclean animal, the donkey, you redeem it and you kill a lamb in the place of the donkey. Do you see it? Do you, do you see Jesus in this? Remember, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Everything written points to him. Um, Jesus spent hours with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, talking to them and describing how everything under the law and the prophets, it was just pointing to him. It was all a sign, and he was the end of that thing that the sign was pointing to. And we've looked at here at Reunion, passage after passage, week after week, sermon after sermon, where we looked at how Jesus is actually revealed over and over and over in the Old Testament um, in the Garden of Eden, it's talking about him. In Noah, in the ark, is a prophetic picture of him. Abraham, um, Moses parting the Red Sea, it's a sign of our deliverance, it's our salvation. Joshua, Joshua, Samuel, Job, David, I can't even remember the other ones we've talked about. On and on and on. Jesus is the point of Scripture. Doesn't matter which testament you're in. Pretty much any Bible story you can find is a prophetic type or a picture of the Messiah. Everything is a picture of the Christ in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, he reveals and restores it in full. Initially, it's a type and a shadow, but then he comes in the full. So again, in the story of Exodus, which animal is Jesus in this story? Lamb or donkey? He's the lamb. Again, who is the lamb of God? Jesus. Who is the unclean donkey? unregenerate man. We're not unclean donkeys under grace, but unregenerate man was the unclean donkey. And people, again, will say, yeah, but this is Exodus. This is the book where the law came. This is under the law. If you read the context, God is talking about the law. And you said that Jesus came to fulfill the law and we don't have to live under the curse. That's true. But this passage is a picture of the Christ and revealed truths under the law still point to the greater truth. The truth is not bound by the law. It's covered. It's darkened by the law. Truth under the law points to grace. It's pointing to a greater coming reality. And Jesus, yes, he came to fulfill the law, but this is still about him. So I want to take this idea of this firstborn either being redeemed or sacrificed, whether it was a lamb or a donkey, and we're going to look at a New Testament parallel that talks about something similar. And when I read this out of Colossians chapter one, I want you to pay attention for the word firstborn. Firstborn, got it? Colossians chapter one. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile, and that word means to restore friendly relations with, to make into right relationship, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth 
or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Do you see the unclean donkey being painted here? Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So what I want you to understand about this is Jesus was the clean lamb who had to be sacrificed so that the unclean donkey, previously us, could be redeemed and be called holy and blameless and beyond reproach by his blood. What does this have to do with tithing? Well, it's the principle of the first. first the firstborn always redeems the rest. Say that. The firstborn always redeems the rest. Jesus, according to this passage, is God's tithe. He's the firstborn. Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. And we know that God sets up these ways, these laws, these principles of the universe. Things, he sets up how things work. And he sets them up for our good, right? For our success. And out of his goodness, he creates these heavenly law, these kingdom principles for how the entire universe is supposed to run and function. He spells them out throughout scripture. Again, you could call these kingdom principles, but it's things like the law of sowing and reaping. It always works. It always succeeds. Uh, prayer and fasting, loving your enemy, enemies, operating in faith. And now I want you to think about this principle of the firstborn and the principle of tithing. When God decided to have Jesus become the lamb who was slain for us, there actually weren't any guarantees attached to it, at least on his side of things. He sent the lamb to die for us before the foundations of the world, before we deserved it, before we were reconciled, before he knew if there would be much of a payout for doing that. It was risky for him, but he had to do it by faith. God always operates by faith. I'm going to tie these thoughts together. Let's go to Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Do you see the lamb and the donkeys? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and that word reconciled means exchanged, just like the lamb and the donkey. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive the reconciliation. Do you see the beautiful exchange? Do you see the firstborn redeeming the rest? I want to... I want to add some more thoughts. Let's go to Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for. Faith is a thing, right? Faith has substance. Faith is the assurance or substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. By faith, say by faith, by faith we understand. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. By faith, say it, by faith, Abel, this is interesting, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. 
through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. It's impossible. There isn't a single thing that we can do that he'll be pleased with if it's not done with faith attached to it. Faith is an action issue. It's not an intellect issue. And faith is placing our trust and knowing that what he says is true. Knowing, firsthand experiential knowledge. Faith is a substance and it, this translation says conviction. The actual word is evidence of things not seen. And people say, how can I believe? There's no evidence of that. There are, faith actually is evidence. Faith is evidence. What is evidence? Evidence is something that upholds in a court of law. Faith, evidence is something that proves truth. Faith holds up in the court of law. Nothing else does. That's why God actually puts a demand on faith and says, without it, it's impossible to please me. It's necessary that faith is involved in our lives. Faith actually changes outcomes. Facts don't change outcomes. Faith changes outcomes. In other words, things are often determined based on whether or not faith is involved. You can have two hopeless situations and one person has no faith but a really good strategy. The other person has no strategy but faith. And guess which one God says pleases him? That's going to offend your flesh. That's going to offend your mind. But guess what? The kingdom's upside down. It doesn't go by your intellect. Knowing is firsthand heart knowledge, always in Scripture. And I need you to hear me on this. God changes outcomes based on whether or not we have faith. He doesn't always change the situation, but he changes outcomes based on faith. Jesus, you know, Jesus would say, go, your faith has healed you. There's three times in scripture when Jesus says that, um, where Jesus healed people. And then he says, your faith has made you well. There was the 10 lepers in Luke 17. There was the woman with the issue of blood in Matthew 9. And there was a blind man in Mark 10. And it wasn't uh, their perfect church attendance that healed them. It wasn't their belief system. It wasn't their confession as Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Because guess what? None of them were Christians. It was their faith that made them well. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. In other words, that he exists, that he is the I am, that he is true. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God is a rewarder. Say it. Say it to your neighbor. Say it to somebody else. In Exodus, God told Moses to consecrate the firstborn animal and child. God didn't ask for the secondborn. He didn't ask for the fifthborn. He asked for the firstborn. He didn't want his people to live a lifestyle that says, after you have nine lambs, give me the tenth one. He could have allowed people to keep any of the sheep they wanted. He could have allowed them to keep the ones they like and to sacrifice their least favorite of the litter. 
But no, he said, give me the first of your sheep before you know how many you're going to have, before you know the quality of the rest of the sheep. Give me the first. Why? Because it requires faith to give him the first. Doesn't require faith to give him the tenth. It takes faith faith to give him the first. It takes faith to give God the first 10% of your income before the other 90% meets all your daily wants and needs. Faith pleases God. It's impossible to please him without it. And when he sees that we're operating by faith and willing to give him our first first fruits, then he redeems the rest because the first fruits always redeem the rest. This is why your 90% will always, 90% in a kingdom principle, when you tithe, always goes further than 100% kept under a curse. It always works. The kingdom principles always work, and there's a principle of the firstborn redeeming the rest, or the first fruits redeeming the rest. And I love revival. I love revival circles, I'd say. We're in them. Like, we love operating in faith and praying for the sick and healing and wheelchairs being emptied and sicknesses being gone. We love operating in faith in our businesses and in our families and any environment we get into. But so many times when it comes to finances, people say, hold up. Church just wants my money. No, God doesn't need your money. He needs your heart. And until he fully has your yes when it comes to finance, he can't have your full heart because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And he asks us to operate in faith when it comes to finance because Otherwise, it won't be a pleasant aroma to him. We're not under law. We're under grace, right? The law demands, but grace supplies. And what I mean is grace supplies. The law says, if you do this, then I will do that. If, then, if, then, or you must do this, and then I will do that. But grace says, I've already supplied you with every spiritual gift. You get to rest in the promises instead of work for the promises under grace. It all points to Jesus being the firstborn who redeems the rest. Because under grace, because he's seated in heavenly places, we're seated in heavenly places. And because he's healer, we get healed. And because he's Jireh, provider, he provides for us. The starting point in grace is rewarder. The starting point in grace is healer. Listen, and when it comes to tithing, the starting point in grace is Provider, rewarder. Remember, there's nothing else that he can possibly do. He's paid the highest price. All he says is test me in this. Take me up on that price that I paid. Tithing relies on these kingdom principles of firstborn and first fruits. Firstborn and first fruits and how they redeem the rest. So I want to look at one more story of giving in the Bible. Um, Let me just turn back the slides a couple slides, back to Hebrews 11. I said when we read it that this was an interesting slide. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, or by faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. So here's God talking about Um, Abel. And then there's a verse I didn't put in there. It talks about Enoch, but it's talking about these two guys and how by faith, God counts it as righteousness. And without that faith, it's impossible to please him. Isn't that interesting that God brings up Cain and Abel? 
Well, Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, that's actually the first account in Scripture about giving to God. It's the first time giving to God is mentioned. I think it was probably happening before that. Like, how else would they have known to do what they did? But this is the first time it's recorded. And according to Hebrews 11, this is also the first time that they're giving in faith. Because it was by faith Abel did this thing. So let's look at Genesis chapter 4, just a couple of verses. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock and from their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his face was gloomy. The Bible differentiates here that Abel brought the first of his portions. The first part is what requires faith, not the last part. And it says that the Lord had regard for Abel, for Abel and that word regard means to gaze. So when Abel came by faith, according to Hebrews 11, it stirred something in God where God gave him his gaze. And it says he gazed with interest at Abel's offering, but he didn't gaze with any interest at Cain's. And I think people naturally say, well, why? Well, look at the first thing it says there. So it came about in the course of time. And some translations say at the end of days that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. It doesn't say that Cain brought first fruits. In fact, it differentiates that only Abel brought the first fruits or the firstborn. And so here Cain is waiting until the end of days, and many scholars believes, believe that this is saying that Cain brought his leftovers. He didn't bring the first fruit. There was no faith attached to this. It was what he just wanted. It was what he wanted to give when he wanted to give it. And the result was God said, I'm not interested in that. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, so the firstborn, which redeems the rest, and the fat portions, which is the most prized portion. So I think he gave tithe and offering. And this got God's attention, and it got God's affection. It got his gaze. So here we have Abel, this, this rancher who brings the firstborn. And Cain is a farmer who doesn't bring his first fruit. Do you see the spiritual law that went into effect? It stirs God's attention, and he gives us his gaze when we bring him our firsts. The firstborn, the first fruit always redeems the rest. And again, I know this is a hard topic for some people. I hope it's not for you. I actually love talking about tithing. I think it's so interesting. I think it just points to Jesus over and over and over again. You can find Jesus in anything if you look hard enough or if you read with the Holy Spirit. He'll show you Jesus in everything. I really like the idea of that redeeming lamb taking the place of this unregenerated donkey. I really like that idea. And it's already happened once because we know that it was, it was by his blood on the cross that regenerated us so that now we are holy and we are blameless. We're not unregenerate anymore. We're regenerated. We're new creatures. We're not lost anymore. We're found. And I feel like for tonight, we're going we're gonna to wrap this thing up here. Uh, we're going to move into ministry time in just a second. But I, I was asking the Lord, well, what do you want to do with this, God? You know, 
I love this idea of the first fruit, the firstborn, but what do you want? And he says, I want you to give people the opportunity to give me their first. And I actually don't think it has anything to do with money. I think we actually lower this principle by thinking it's only a money principle. It absolutely applies to finances, but this isn't a finance principle, it's a heart issue. All of these things are always heart issues. And I think that he's, he's looking at things tonight and he's giving us an opportunity to make your offering to him the forefront um, so that it's not over the course of time I brought the Lord something. Or at the end of days, he got what was left over. I think some of you actually need to give your hearts. There are portions of your heart that you've kept to yourself. You say, God, you can have it all except for that one little thing. And it's like, you know, God, you can have 99.9% of my heart. Look how much of my heart that is. And it's like he finds that one little fraction of a piece of heart that you're not willing to give. He said, I'll take that part right there. Yeah, but God, look at all the rest. Nope, I want that part. That's the part I'm looking for. God doesn't need your money. He needs your heart. And where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I do think that there are probably some people in this room, and I know reunion, we're a tithing church, but I do think there's probably some people in this room who don't know the truth about tithing. And therefore, because they don't know the truth, they've never been set free. They've never had firsthand experiential knowledge about giving God their first fruits. Um, hearing about tithing won't set you free. Agreeing with the principle of tithing won't set you free. But taking them up on the promise that comes with tithing actually does set you free. Because there's firsthand experiential knowledge of the truth. So again, I want to paraphrase Malachi 3. We don't need this on the screen. But essentially, God says this. He said, it's time to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. It's time to test him now in this, because he will open up the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. It's time to test him that he will rebuke the, de the devourer over you, over your finances, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your ground, of which he wants the first fruits of. It's time that all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Will you guys stand with me, please? Because this isn't actual, or sorry, because this isn't a physical thing we're talking about. It's a spiritual principle that has physical repercussions attached to it. It's a spiritual act, just like fasting is a spiritual act. And yes, our body comes along with our spirits, but our spirits are what's fasting. It's not just our bodies. The same principle applies to tithing. And I think what I, what I would hate to see happen is to people say, I don't need to do that. I love him with all my heart. Because Jesus clearly says, and we've looked at this, he's saying, you actually need to show me. I'm only testing you with your, with your treasure because I know that your heart is actually attached to it. And if you're willing to trust me with your treasure, then I know you trust me with your whole heart. I don't think God needs your money tonight, but I do think that some of you have a stronghold over your life of finances. And people say, like, I don't, I don't work 100 hours a week because I'm not a slave to finance. I, I work what I need, the hours I need to get the money I want. And you know what? Maybe you're not a slave to stockpiling finances, but I, I do think you're a slave to controlling your finances. And God hates control. The only control mentioned in scripture is self-control. 
And it's a fruit of the Spirit. You only gain self-control by being with God the Holy Spirit. You only get faith by asking for faith because it's a gift. You can't create faith. You can't try hard. You can't, you know, flex all your muscles and faith will magically appear. It's literally something that you have no control over, that you can say, Lord, give me faith, and he gives you freely. But you actually need faith to be attached to this. So what we're going to do, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to dismiss. Um, we're going to have ministry time like we always do, but we're going to do one thing that's different. And I, I hate doing this because I feel like people will interpret this the wrong way. But So just don't interpret this the wrong way. Got it? Just interpret it the right way. We're actually going to put the ways to give on the screen. Not because we're desperate and we need your pennies. God doesn't need your money. He needs your heart. But because there are people in this room who God's actually saying, hey, I need you to test me in this and trust that I'm going to open the storehouses for you. This isn't a physical act that has spiritual repercussions. It's a spiritual act that takes place in the physical. So I'm going to bless you. Father, thank you for tonight. Just open your hands. Not Usually we're doing this as a sign of receiving, but I feel like it's a sign of giving tonight. Father, we give you everything. Have our whole hearts. Not 90%, not 99%. Have it all. Jesus, there's no greater reward than you. There's nothing worth more than you. So take it all. Take everything. Take all that I am and give me that beautiful exchange. Thank you so much that the firstborn redeems the rest. And so we, we're redeemed by your blood. We're redeemed by your hope. We're redeemed by your faith. We're redeemed by every principle you've set up for us. Thank you that the blood cover us. Thank you so much that by your stripes our bodies are healed, that Lyme's disease is cast out, that eating disorders are removed, Thank you that every stain of sin, like Micah 7 says, is trampled under your feet. That you choose to pass by the sins of your remnant. And we just say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, all that is within me. We remember all of your benefits, who pardons all of our iniquities, who forgives all of our sins and heals all of our diseases. God, would you restore us in places that we didn't even know we needed restoration in? Would you shine light on the slivers of our hearts that we didn't even know were in the shadows? Take it all. Take it all. Take all that I am. Make that beautiful exchange. So we bless this house. We bless this family. Thank you for the hearts in this room. Thank you for the lives that are impacted when this church walks outside the four walls. Thank you that we will see your kingdom come every single day, that your will will be done on Oahu as it is in heaven. Thank you, God, in advance for the outpouring of signs and wonders and miracles and healings that we're seeing trickle in. But, Father, that we, we just put a, a, a pull on the anointing for a greater measure. We keep asking, we keep seeking, we keep knocking and say, let the door be open. In Jesus' name, amen. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5, live at Kahalama. Aloha.